Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined as always by my co-host, Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jason. It's uh, good to be back, as always, to talk about space. So many things, so many spacecraft, so many would-be spacecraft. <laughs> That's pretty much the whole show this week, I think. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. There's a lot, lot going on in space and a lot going on on Earth of stuff that is supposed to go to space. Let's talk about one of those. So the Mars 2020 rover didn't have a name for a long time. NASA held this really wide-reaching, I don't want to say competition, but competition, to name the rover. And as of last week, it has a name. So yes. Mars... 2020 is now known as Perseverance, which I think is an excellent name. Yeah. That's, that's my, my hot take on the name. That's a good name. Well, it fits in with the theme, right? We, we've we had um, spirit and opportunity and curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. So it fits in there. Yeah. And those also had their names chosen by students, which is really cool. So this competition was open to two students. You and I couldn't put our name in. It came from school-aged mm. children. And uh, the winner this time was a seventh grader by the name of Alexander uh, Mather from Virginia. His name was with the multiple rounds. So they had like 4,700 volunteer judges, teachers, professional space enthusiasts. They reviewed the submissions. They narrowed the pool down to 155 and then down to nine. And then the public could vote on those. And after 770,000 votes... Uh, the results were submitted to NASA for consideration. You don't want yes. a, a Rovi a McRover face situation. No. Exactly. You don't want that. <laughs> you don't want that. Everyone's learned their lesson about letting the internet name things. And Perseverance was chosen, which I think is fantastic. It's a good name. Fits with the theme. And uh, so we'll all talk about, hopefully, everything works out. Perseverance scrambling around on the surface of Mars. And like we said, Alexander's in seventh grade in Virginia, and he became a space enthusiast through attending space camp in Huntsville, uh, which I have not been to space camp, but I've been to where they hold it, and it's awesome. Mm. He saw the Saturn V on display there, and uh, there's this quote that NASA has of him saying, this was a chance to help the agency that put humans on the moon and will soon do it again. This mm. Mars rover will help pave the way for human presence there. I wanted to try to help in any way that I could. Refusal of the challenge was not an option. That's awesome. You want to tell us about Voyager? Yeah. So Voyager 2, we talked about actually two episodes ago. We talked about how Voyager 2 had a little problem. Um, It had like a partial shutdown. They had to reset it and fix it. And it's amazing. Remember, keeping in mind that this is uh, a space probe. It's been in space for 43 years. It's 11 billion miles from Earth. But we still keep tabs on it. It's still teaching us things. It's, you know, its primary mission long since complete of flying by planets in the solar system. But it's still teaching us things about the outer solar system and the edge of the sun's influence in interstellar space. We'll keep it going. There's a, there's a small team that works on it. Um, and it had this problem and, and they fixed it. But What's interesting is we're not going to be able, if it comes up with other problems, to fix them for a while because of how we communicate with space probes, which is actually kind of an interesting thing to think about. Like, how do we communicate over these long distances? And the answer is we have really big, powerful antennas to send and receive 
from far out in space. Uh, it's called the Deep Space Network. It's generally what's used to talk to space probes all over the place. They are the most powerful radio antennas in the world. Um, there are three locations which, with multiple antennas at each location, Goldstone in California, Canberra in Australia, and Madrid in Spain. Um, we've been using the this deep space network, the DSN, um, to communicate for 57 years. It's used by NASA, ESA, and several other international agencies. I think that, that new Mars probe that's coming from, what is it, the UAE? in if that's going to launch in 2020 it's also using this like all a lot of international agencies use it each station has three 34 meter antennas and one gargantuan 70 meter antenna and there's actually a pretty cool website you can go to the dsn now website in nasa and you've probably seen this if, the, if you've been on space twitter at all people link to this all the time it is a really cool site that actually shows you all of the dishes all of the antenna and who they're communicating with, like in outer space. It, you, you see all uh, four at each location. Um, but if you go there now, what you'll discover is that the big dish in Canberra is grayed out. It's, it's faded away. And why is that? Um, the answer is uh, antennas need maintenance. And in fact, it's more than that. As we just mentioned, Mars 2020, three of the four Mars missions that are planned to launch this summer are going to use the Deep Space Network. Only China is using its own antenna to communicate. And what that means is they want to do some maintenance on the Deep, deep Space Network before that happens, before those Mars missions reach Mars. And they need to do maintenance on the 70-meter dish at Canberra. But because of where Voyager 2 is, if you've ever wondered where Voyager 2 is relative to Earth... The answer is it's kind of down because only Canberra's dish can see it. So that's the direction Voyager 2 is. It's a, an area of space that's only visible um, from the Southern Hemisphere, not from Madrid or Goldstone. And so uh, if they're going to fix Canberra's 20 meter or 70 meter dish, they can't talk to Voyager. Um, and that means that for the next 11 months, we won't be able to send messages to Voyager, although the smaller antenna at Canberra can receive messages from uh, Voyager. So what it means is that the Voyager team has to keep, cross its fingers a little bit, hope that nothing really bad happens, um, hope it keeps itself oriented properly with its antenna pointing back at the Earth. Uh, I didn't actually know this, but Voyager to, to this day has to fire thrusters more than a dozen times a day, just a little tiny bit, just to make sure that it stays properly oriented. And it's, there's onboard automation to handle the orientation process, but it has to work correctly. And if something bad happens, something goes wrong, there's nothing the Voyager team can send to the spacecraft to fix it. So they will just have to watch and wait and, and hope, although they can still get data back. So it's uh, probably nerve-wracking uh, almost year for that Voyager team, although they can still receive messages. But this is also something that we need to do in terms of maintenance, because these antennas are what we use to talk to all, you know, all of the spacecraft mm -hmm. for NASA and ESA and many other countries. And if you haven't been to that page before, it is a lot of fun to watch as new craft go up there. You can actually go to that page and see, you know, where are we communicating with the, you know, the current Mars rover or one of the Mars orbiters, or, you know, if there's something on the moon, you know, are, are, are we communicating with that? Or are we talking to something in the outer solar system? All of that information is there, like New Horizons data, you'll find out where that's coming down, if New Horizons is talking. So um, Deep Space Network needs to be updated. 
that sounds all good, but it is going to be this silent period for Voyager 2 in terms of, like, it won't hear from us. I'm sure that is a little nerve-wracking for the Voyager team, but this spacecraft has behaved well for a really long time, and hopefully it continues to do so during this uh, this downtime. Yeah, we'll cross our fingers for Voyager. It is uh, 43 years in space. Pretty impressive. Pretty amazing. Very impressive. Uh, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about SpaceX. So there's a, a couple of stories here. Uh, one, you may have seen a couple of weeks ago pictures of a a blown-up prototype in the Texas de- desert where uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX are building pressure vessels uh, in progress of the Starship hardware that they're putting together. They're doing all this prototyping, and they had uh, SN1, which was this rupture tank. It kind of went off, and they think it was due to uh, bad welds on the tank. And so this is all going on, and um, Eric over at Ars Technica actually went to Texas, interviewed uh, at SpaceX, and his story is simply amazing, and you should definitely go read it, but it seems like SpaceX and this team in Texas are just burning the candle at both ends to get Starship prototyping and construction underway. His story opens with this this crazy picture of Musk holding a meeting at like 1 o'clock in the morning to approve a bunch of hiring, and then by the end of the next day, they'd hire 250 people, like from this, yeah. the local area. yeah. It's pretty wild, right? Real wild. Uh, you, that was a story uh, with Tesla a few years ago. Their so-called production hell, where like Musk was just like sleeping on the line, trying to figure out all of its automation and stuff. And it seems to be that he's repeating that here now with SpaceX. Um, but there's also the story in the Ars Technica article about the SN1, so that that test bed that had exploded on the stand. Again, it's a pressurization tank, so it's holding really cold, uh, I think, liquid oxygen in this tank in in this case, and it had ruptured. And they were meeting about that, and some engineers sort of voiced, well, we were worried about it, but we did the test anyways. You know, we were kind of told to keep moving forward. And Musk said, you know, any engineer who didn't feel heard could contact him directly. By all accounts, he seems to be on the premises, basically nonstop right now yeah. down there in Texas trying to get this mm-hmm. moving because he wants to build out a production line for Starship, hopefully building one a week and then one every 72 hours. <laughs> yep. LOL Musk time, but clearly the company is moving quickly in this development stage. Well, yeah. Elon Musk says a lot of things, but you know, SpaceX is SpaceX has proved to be quite impressive with what it's able to do, even if that is not. I think there's a, there's a factor of this that is, I'm going to ask for everything and then you're going to give me a lot. And that's what I want is a lot. Yeah. Like they, you know, he's he's overdoing it here a little bit. But um, I think it's interesting that, you know, in saying, if you think there's a reason that this isn't working, come talk to me that, you know, we don't want a, a culture here where we we know there's something wrong and we go ahead anyway because that's a bad idea. But he also is definitely, you know, trying to cultivate a culture of uh, uh, not being failure averse, right? Mm-hmm. Like he wants them to be smart, but it's okay if stuff breaks. So um, if the first uh, starship blows apart, you know, we want to know why, and that might not have been a good reason, but they've also got another one coming and this is how you learn and all of those things. So I think it's a, uh, it's fascinating, right, to see him. How do you how do you get a project like this off the ground? Literally off the ground. Yeah. 
it, it's pretty it's pretty wild and it's it's all kind of building on his whole thing of we want to get to Mars, we want to put people on Mars and he sees the starship, you know, needing a whole fleet of them to make that possible and even though it's very early days, I mean again they're just testing pressure vessels and they're coming up with new ways to weld things. They're like working on this machine to make the welding more or I guess more consistent across multiple finishes, like all right. this stuff. They got the the welding zipper machine thing yeah. that they're inventing and all of that. Like it's it's cool. It's it's a, it's a great article. Like it really is. Like so, I visited Elon Musk in Texas, and this is what it's like. And it's 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 very good. It's easy to look at this and think, well, Musk is sort of out there on a limb with this, and uh, there's something to be said for that. But like you said, they have a pretty proven track record at this point. And I, I just keep thinking about this in conjunction, or I guess in, not in conjunction to, but in contrast to the SLS, which has moved very slowly for a whole lot more money. And just how different, the, the two programs couldn't be more different, I think. For sure. And that just really, really is interesting to consider when you think that Starship, at some point will be put into service and NASA will probably buy flights on it. It's like, well, it's, it just comes from a different place than NASA's own hardware. Yep. It's wild. Not everyone's in the desert building rockets in the middle of the night is what we're saying. And, and blowing them up. <laughs> yeah, repeatedly. Uh-huh. But that's how they did. That's how the Falcon came to be, right? They were on an island and tried to launch of them and finally the last one worked and, and here we are. Yeah. Um, in fact, in conjunction with the story, there's uh, another story about SpaceX that uh, over the weekend, it had a successful launch, uh, an International Space Station resupply mission. It was its 20th successful resupply mission, and it was the 50th landing of the Falcon 9, hmm. which is, I mean, I remember the first one, right? And it's now yeah. up to 50. And it's, it's, it's that almost routine thing that people talk about with space. Like space is not routine, and yet to make it look routine, to have gone through 50 of them, it's still amazing. I still like to watch it every single time. But the fact that there are 50 first-stage landings that they've done, oof, it's crazy. It, it is crazy. It was also the last launch of the Dragon 1 capsule. They'll be using Dragon 2 moving forward which is very similar to the Crew Dragon capsule for yeah. uh, commercial crew. It's based on the same same platform. Um, it comes with a revised parachute system, 20% greater cargo capacity, and can be reused up to five times, where the Dragon 1 can be reused up to three times. So again, making that uh, reusability case stronger and stronger. And a big improvement is Dragon 2 can dock automatically with a space station. Dragon 1 had to be snatched out of orbit with the robotic arm, which meant the astronauts on the space station had to be involved in that. Mm -hmm. And now the astronauts will still monitor the automated docking, but they're not responsible for uh, berthing it to the station and then disconnecting it and setting it free. So it is uh, improvement all the way around. And I just I like that these stories came up at the same time because it shows... Just how interesting a company SpaceX is, where on one hand, they're celebrating this milestone. On the other hand, like Elon Musk is running around at one o'clock in the morning, hiring a bunch of people from Texas, right? It's just, it's so, and they're such an interesting company. And they owe, they're owed all the congratulations in the world for the milestone, of course. And it is really, truly impressive, but they're still just so unusual when it comes to the industry they're in. I like the idea that the uh, Dragon 2 has, uh, has Tesla autopilot 
right? <laughs> That's basically what's going on here. But it is like you want automated cargo. That's how it should work, right? It should be automated. You shouldn't have to grab it with an arm and then yeah. attach it. So, uh, yeah, modern platform based on the same stuff as Crew Dragon. It's uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. SpaceX doing the doing the outlandish and also doing the kind of almost boring, mm-hmm. and that says it all, I think, about where they are right now. And it's using a docking adapter that SpaceX itself delivered to the space station, right? right. Like it, it's like they are they are uh, supporting things for their future endeavors as well. Yeah. All right, let's take a break and talk about our sponsor this week. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name, a bunch of award-winning templates to choose from, and much more. Just think about what's on a regular website now. Maybe an online store, portfolio, galleries, blogs, podcast. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you put all of that stuff on one site really easily. Because there's nothing to install, there are no patches to worry about, no upgrades are needed. You don't have to worry about that stuff because Squarespace has got it covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. We just relaunched my brother's nonprofit, his website, uh, on Squarespace just a couple of weeks ago. And one thing that's really neat about it is those themes are really like beautiful and there's lots of optimization and customization you could do with them, but you can also override it with your own CSS. So if you're somebody like me who wants something a little beyond what the themes give you, you can go in there and tinker with it. And I've got, you know, several lines of, of custom CSS running on that site and it's just really easy to do and I can adjust it really quickly so you can get nerdy if you want to, but by no means do you have to. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash liftoff. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We'd like to thank Squarespace for the support of the show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. All right. Now we have a meaty topic, which is what is going on with Boeing and Starliner and the fact that it's had issues. Um, We talked about it. There was a big kind of conference call about it. This This is Boeing's entry into commercial crew. And as everybody knows, it had a flight, but it didn't go to the ISS. And it, and then there turned out to be issues. We didn't know how many issues. It turns out um, that there are a lot, like a lot, lot. Uh, Stephen, uh, tell me about what went wrong. <laughs> yeah, a lot of things went wrong. So this has unfolded since that December flight. But we had the incorrect mission elapsed timer where the Starliner yes. capsule didn't know what time it was. You had software errors around the jettisoning of the service module before re-entry. We spoke about that last time, that there was mm-hmm. concern that the service module could have struck the, the capsule before re-entry. That's super bad. And then, of course, there was the loss of space-to-ground communication uh, during some of these really critical times during the mission. And and so NASA and Boeing have worked together to to understand what happened and understand the, the causes for it, which in this sort of engineering, the causes for what happened are actually maybe more important than what actually 
took place. You need to understand the failures kind of behind the failures. Right. And the big number here is the, uh, 61. So the review team's analysis identified 61 corrective and preventative actions to address the software issues, being the mission lapse timer and the issue with the service module uh, jettison and, and and burn. So 61 things to look at that. Um, with four main areas in which work will be done. So Boeing will review and correct the code for the mission lapse timer and the disposal burn for the service module. They will strengthen its internal review process, including better peer and control board reviews, and improve its software process training. So uh, if you've never worked in software, peer and manager reviews are a big deal. Peer review is where you're working with somebody kind of side by side. They're more or less on your level and you're reviewing each other's work. And then it kind of goes to the next step up in the chain and is reviewed by a manager, in this case, a control board, where people with more expertise and a broader picture of what's happening look at your software and they should understand how it's going to integrate with other pieces. Because I would guess that software engineers working on this they're only working on a very small part of it, right? And just a couple of, you know, desks over could be somebody working on something totally different. So you need this overarching understanding of how the pieces fit together. And that seems to be a real sore spot in the way the Starliner software has been developed so far. Uh, Boeing will increase the fidelity in the testing of its software during all phases of flight, I think last week or the week before we spoke about the end-to-end testing and uh, that they're going to improve that using more simulations, more emulation, and make that more similar to actual flight systems. So there seems to be have been some sort of breakdown in the way we're testing this and the way the code has developed on its own has sort of diverged. And they want to put those back on the same path and say the testing is going to reflect what we're actually doing as opposed to what we thought we were going to do a year ago or two years ago, if that makes sense. And then Boeing will check its software coding as hardware design changes are implemented. So you have hardware and software being developed at the same time. It seems like maybe there was a breakdown of communication between those parts of Boeing, and they're going to work better to bring those people uh, to the table together and make sure they understand you know, the left hand is what the right hand is doing, if you will. All good things. Sure, all good things. Those all sound reasonable to me. <laughs> the communication issues seem to have been hardware-based, uh, and Boeing is working now to change out ground components that should allow better communication with Starliner when it's in orbit. So, you know, I don't know if that's antenna or radio. I, I couldn't find a lot of detail on exactly mm. what that covers, but they are working on it with additional testing going on later in March. But let's get to the number, right? Like yeah. there was a number. I remember when this came out, I, I, I sent this to you and you're like, oh boy, yeah. it, it's 61 oh, man. corrective and preventative actions and 49 gaps in software testing. Yeah. This, the Starliner issues really seem to fall on two sides of the same coin where you had issues with the software and the programs written and you had issues in testing that didn't catch those those other problems. And so, you know, it's one thing to have bugs. Bugs happen. But testing should catch them. And it seems like those gaps in testing are what allowed some of those other 61 things to get through. 
what troubles me about this is not that there are issues, right? Like this is a new human spaceflight system. It is going to have issues. Yep. This is why we test. This is why we try to have these overviews. This is why um, NASA works with Boeing on on the issues that it's facing. That's all acceptable. What bothers me is that there still seems to be a lack of clarity about whether they're going to do a test flight, find a hundred things wrong, and then say, we don't need another test flight. That was the most surprising thing to me, is that um, when unrolling these findings, it is still undecided if there'll be a second uncrewed test flight. That I was certain by the time I got to the bottom of these articles, it would say, and they're going to schedule a test flight for some time over the summer. I think... The, the way I understand it, they're required to unless NASA waives that requirement. Yeah, I mean, the, cli- the client, which is NASA, can say, nuh-uh. Right. I, I think that NASA is concerned, two things. I think NASA is concerned about the, about the cost of Boeing and, like, wants to be, they, they want to be fair. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I do worry that it's also that that relationship is too cozy. And they're uh, doing Boeing favors that they need to not do. Yeah. But yes, as, a, as the client, NASA seems to be able to say, this is not good enough. Mm-hmm. You have to do another test. Redo your test, which is going to cost money. But if it has to happen, it has to happen. And there's $140 million in the NASA budget for another test flight. I really hope they do it because you have this many issues. I don't think it's smart to have the next flight of this thing to have crew members on it. No. And, you know, I I totally agree and get what you're saying about the coziness. That's something that I worry about, too. Um, Part of this is that NASA will co-locate personnel, like embed NASA engineers in the Boeing software team to improve the verification tests. I don't know if that was already happening or not. I don't know if this is an increase in the number of personnel who are in this role or it's a new position. But if it's a new position, that's sort of scary to me. It's like, Yes, Boeing is building this. Yes, NASA is the customer. But this has got to be built like hand in hand. It seems like it hasn't been, at least to the extent that it needs to be. And maybe it is that because NASA and Boeing do so much together, Boeing's also building the SLS, remember, a lot of other things that they sort of, okay, we know what you guys can do. We trust y'all to do this. And then, you know, it went south and now they're trying to to fix it. That may be the case. But I, I do have the sense that, NASA needs to ride Boeing harder when it comes to this sort of thing. And it's one thing to talk about the SLS and budget and that sort of thing. But when you're talking about gaps in testing, like those are really basic things that need to be addressed before you put human beings aboard your spacecraft. Yep. Mm. I agree completely. Boeing. (sighs) So we'll see where this goes. I expect this will be quiet for a while and then we'll hear at some point in the next couple of months what they're going to do about a second a second uncrewed test. Well, let's let's move on to something a little more um fun, okay. I guess, yes. which is digging on the moon. Let's dig in dig in the lunar soil uh with a a new <laughs> it's a new space probe concept with a new acronym. So today we are talking about Viper, which is a rover designed to go to the moon and look for water ice. Viper, by the way, Jason, well, Jason, you want to tell us what it stands for? Have you read this yet? Yeah, Volatiles Mm -hmm. Investigating. 
polar exploration rover. So it's a little bit backward, but it does actually make sense. It's a polar exploration rover that is investigating volatiles. But if you say volatiles investigating polar exploration rover, should there be a hyphen in there? I don't know. It's Viper. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I'll give this a thumbs up. I think that okay. it... it, it uh, it's literally every letter stands for every word that's in the name. I know that's important to you, and that for me that that is the biggest way that these okay. uh, these names cheat. So I'm I'm going to give it a thumbs up to Viper. Plus, it's kind of cool. Viper, we're sending Viper to the moon. Viper's an awesome name, right? Like, yeah, Viper's right? cool. Uh, it is scheduled to be on the lunar surface by December 2023. That is one year later than its initial date, but still aiming for this, which would be before Artemis lands on the moon in 2024 or whenever Artemis does that. It will work around the moon's south pole, again, in areas targeted for Artemis landings because it is believed to be resource rich with water ice, which is a big, big deal. The plan is to combine Viper's findings on the surface with orbital readings and begin to build a map of the location of water ice on the moon. Now, this is could be at the bottom of craters. It could just be under the soil. But over time, they want to... to have an understanding of where water ice is mm-hmm. uh, is available and easily available on the poles of the moon, right? It, it could be on the South Pole, but if it's, you know, the bottom of a, of a 500-foot crater, that is a little bit tricky, but they're hoping that it's much closer to the surface. And that's what Viper's all about. It's going to roll around. It's about the size of a golf cart. It's going to have uh, four instruments on board, two for detecting and hopefully finding water ice and then two for analyzing samples to look Hmm. for it. So the first uh, instrument is the neutron spectrometer system or NIS, I guess, NSS, the the NSS, right? It's just, it's just, yeah, it's just an acronym. I like saying it like a snake. It's a snake. It's a viper. I'm going to go with NIS. Okay. (laughs) I don't give that a thumbs up. Okay. That's fine. That's terrible. Uh, So it will work to detect water below the surface and guide Viper's team on where to dig. And this is where uh, Viper's sort of uh, party piece comes in is a one meter drill that it can put on the surface and and core into the, the lunar surface. This is called Trident. You want to tell us what this stands for? Because I want to see your head explode. The regolith. Mm. Ice drill for exploring new terrain. I think you, you got quiet there for a second. Did you skip some words? I can't. Mm. Yeah. Well, I had to downplay the words that aren't actually in it because then it would be called tray defent. That's not as good. And that's not as good as trident. So, yes, the regolith and ice drill for exploring new terrain. I give it like a solid like thumb 70% up because trident, yeah. again, is cool. You know, it's like you're. It is. There's a, snake the on, there's a snake on the moon and it's digging with a trident. It's great. How could you be upset about this? And yeah. so, like I said, it will core soil samples up to three feet below the surface. And then it will analyze them on board to determine the composition and concentration of various resources. But again, water ice is the main thing they're after here. Uh, these will be put through a couple of tools. One is called M-SOLO, which is Mass Spectrometer Observing Lunar Operations. Not too bad. And the yeah. nervous. <laughs> nervous. <laughs> Near infrared, so the doubling up there, volatiles uh-huh. spectrometer system. Yeah, okay. It's, I mean, it's it's not spelling an actual word and then you pronounce it like a word, so I'll go with it. Nervous. Nervous. 
you know, people are afraid of snakes. It all ties together, it makes, Jason. It makes you nervous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all it's on the theme. So yeah, so this is a big deal. Finding water ice on the moon would be huge in terms of future missions, not only having water available, but turning the elements within water, the hydrogen and the oxygen, into all sorts of things. You can use it for power. You can use it for fuel. This would be a big, big deal, and Viper is another step down that road. Uh, it will collect up to 100 days worth of data. That data will be overlaid, what we know, like I said, from uh, orbital measurements and try to piece together, try to understand where this water ice may be. Uh, the Viper rover will be delivered as part of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services, or CLPS. And as of last month, it asked NASA asked commercial partners to start bidding on launching Viper to the moon by 2023. So yeah. So here's here's this is the this is the catch, right? Like this is we're going to build this rover. Um, who wants to deliver it? And that's the that's the other part of this is getting getting stuff down onto the surface of the moon, like this. And and the commercial partners are going to bid on it. Yep. So right, you know, maybe we'll get this by 2023. A uh, a lunar a little lunar prospector, if mm-hmm. you will. But don't call it that because that was a different thing that they canceled. But yeah. Here is something very similar. Yeah, the Viper killed the Prospector. Again, it works, man. They're on top of it as a NASA. I think he, I think it's because the Prospector didn't look in his boot, and there's a Viper in there. There's a whole story to be told. <laughs> it's a story told in acronyms. Yeah, everyone's nervous about the ending. Anyways, so that's Viper. We did want to let people know our Apollo 13 episode is coming up next month. But 13 Minutes to the Moon, the BBC podcast where they covered Apollo 11 and the, the really focusing on the landing sequence on the moon, uh, is back with season two uh, where they are covering Apollo 13. And I'm about halfway through episode one. And so far, it's really enjoyable. They've got Jim Lovell on it. Uh, Fred Hayes is on it, and I think it's going to be a really enjoyable show that did a great job with season one. So if you're itching for Apollo 13 stuff, uh, you can go in and get started with that. I think you will really enjoy it. Yeah, check it out. Great podcast. I think that does it, Jason. Yeah. All right. Well, the, that that wraps up this episode of Liftoff, I guess. But, you know, we'll be back in a fortnight. It's fine. We will. We will be back. And until then, uh, you f- if you want to find more about the stories we spoke about, you can head to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 119. While you're there, you can send us an email with feedback or follow-up. There's a link on that site over to our Tumblr where we post uh, stories in between episodes. You can become a member and support Liftoff directly there as well. And uh, you can find us over on Twitter. Jason is J Snell. And you can find me there as ISMH. Until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios. <laughs>